Today's episode of Cold Case Frozen Tundra, as always, is sponsored by Badger State Brewing. Dr. Karsten is recovering from a case of laryngitis, as you'll probably notice in today's episode. So I'm here to share my thoughts on Badger State's brews. Located just a short walk from Lambeau Field in the heart of Green Bay, Badger State is the perfect location for a pre-event hangout, post-game beer, or any occasion. Or, you know, no occasion at all. They're making a wide range of excellent beers, from lagers and IPAs, including two of our favorites, Grassy Place Hazy IPA and Brewski Lager, to darker beers, ciders, and even seltzers. They also work with other brewers to feature a list of guest beers in case you run out of Badger State brews to sample. Check out their website, badgerstatebrewing.com, that's B-A-D-G-E-R, statebrewing.com, for a full menu, distribution list, merch orders, and much more. Near a family member's headstone in a Chilton, Wisconsin cemetery, a gently carved slab of granite stands on end in memory of Lori Jean Deppis. Etched into its polished surface are two dates. The first, September 17, 1971, commemorates the date of Lori's birth. The other, August 19, 1992, marks the last date she was seen the night she seemingly vanished into the Menasha, Wisconsin night, just outside the apartment where a group of friends awaited her arrival. The start of a search for answers that has spanned three decades, multiple investigators, several search efforts, and attention on a national scale. As we've already heard this season, Lori's case is one that rocked an entire community, that altered the public's perception of safety and security in ways many would only begin to understand years later. Crime and violence were no longer abstract events that occurred in newspapers, stories they viewed on TV from the comfort of their couches. Lori's disappearance hit close to home, a gnawing unease amplified by the continued lack of answers. That search isn't over. At the bottom of Lori's memorial is a line which reads, We search for you still. It stands in testament to the endless dedication of the many family, friends, and others who will not rest until Lori has been found, until the community has answers. I'm Matt Hiskus, and this is Cold Case Frozen Tundra, Season 2, Episode 3, Larry. Welcome to the Cold Case Frozen Tundra podcast. I'm Dr. Jordan Karsten, your co-host along with Matt Hiskus. In our last episode, we revisited the search for Lori Deppis after her friends, who waited for her at her boyfriend's apartment, discovered she had vanished just moments after they heard her pull into the apartment's parking lot. The initial hours of trying to sort out where Lori might have gone turned into days of intense searching. Those became weeks of coordinated efforts to find any sign of her. Rewards were offered for her safe return, and then for any clues at all. Years passed. Birthdays, holidays, weddings, and other events were missed. And still, there was no sign of Lori. Then in 2010, 18 years after Lori went missing, there was a break in the case, or so it seemed. Larry Dwayne Hall, a prisoner incarcerated in connection with the abduction and murder of a young woman in Illinois, and a suspected serial killer involved in dozens of disappearances, confessed to investigators that he had taken and killed Lori Deppis back in 1992. It seemed open and shut. Many believe Larry is responsible for an untold number of murders throughout the Midwest and lower United States, 
his story seemed to fit. But like everything else in this case, it wouldn't be quite that simple. To fully understand Larry Dwayne Hall's confession and potential involvement in Lori's disappearance, we need to know more of his story. But before we begin, we want to make one quick note. It is our belief that far too often in situations such as this, the perpetrators of crimes quickly become the sole focus of conversation. Their stories are interesting. We as listeners want to understand the conditions that create a killer to wrap our minds around an act that the average person cannot comprehend committing. It intrigues us, and our curiosity makes sense. The problem arises when the offender's story overshadows that of his or her victims. We expend so much mental energy attempting to understand the killer that we overlook the damage he or she created. The lives taken, dreams shattered, families upended, and the prolonged struggles of those left behind. That is not what we aim to do. Our goal in discussing Larry Dwayne Hall, or any other perpetrator that may be covered in this podcast for that matter, is not to empathize with him nor cast him as a victim. In describing his life and the crimes he is at least suspected of committing, we will undoubtedly mention the names of victims whose killer, whether it's Larry Hall or someone else, has never been revealed whose families continue to search for answers, just as Lori's family and friends do today. Each of these women has a story that deserves to be told more loudly than the tale of their potential killer. We hope that happens. But, in doing just that for Lori, we need to dig into the life of the man who confessed to killing her. Okay, with all that said, let's begin. Larry Dwayne Hall was born in Wabash County, Indiana in 1962. His father, already in his 40s by the time Larry was born, was the caretaker and gravedigger at Falls Cemetery, a sprawling property in Wabash that, in addition to the many burial plots and memorial structures, included the cemetery's Sexton's residence, in which the family lived. The cemetery and its grounds are where Larry grew up. As he aged, Larry would often help his father perform tasks for the cemetery, and, given this, it's fair to say that Larry, from even an early age, had a unique relationship with death. At least one that's outside the typical experience for most of us. There are a few details about Larry Hall that should be noted right from the start. First, Larry had a twin brother, Gary, who would be Larry's closest childhood friend and playmate, a relationship that extended far into their young adult life. Though extremely close, the twins were different in many ways. Gary was, even from an early age, much more personable and more social than Larry. Where Larry had difficulty making friends, Gary didn't seem to struggle at all. Gary would have many girlfriends and relationships, while the concept seemed much more foreign to the shy and reclusive Larry. Well, during the birth, and and again, I talked to nurses that were there. We apologize for the audio quality. Since we live in different states, this is a recorded phone call. During the birth, um, Gary was born first, and it was everything was great. But they had some problems when Larry was born, and I'm not sure if the cord was wrapped around his neck. But whatever, he was deprived of oxygen for a while. Gary was much more outgoing and vivacious, and Larry was very shy. That's Christopher Hawley Martin, an ordained minister, journalist, and himself a product of Wabash, Indiana, who grew up visiting the same locations, seeing the same sites, and attending the same schools as the Hall twins, though several years removed. Christopher is also the man who quite literally wrote the book on Larry Duane Hall. His work, Urges, a chronicle of serial killer Larry Hall, is the most comprehensive biography on the life and crimes of Larry Duane Hall available today. Much of the content we will be discussing in this episode regarding Larry's early life and potential crimes before his conviction have their roots in the records and accounts that Christopher Hawley Martins compiled. Larry's lack of connection with others might be due in part to the second detail that's worth mentioning, his IQ which according to psychologists is 80. IQ stands for intelligence quotient, an abbreviation for the term coined in the early 1900s by psychologist William Stern, 
It represents a total score derived from a set of standardized tests which, together, are meant to provide an overall assessment of human intelligence. The average IQ range spans testing scores from 90 to 109. 110 to 119 is considered high average and a score above 120 is considered superior intellect. Larry's IQ of 80 places him at the very bottom of the range labeled low average. His score is just one point above the range of IQ scores that clinicians consider borderline cognitive impairment. To put it in context, the Social Security Administration typically defines IQ scores below 70 as an intellectual disorder. Individuals in this category are considered disabled and are eligible for Social Security disability funds. But when paired with demonstrated inability to function in other areas of life, the administration sometimes also assigns disability status to individuals with higher scores, sometimes as high as 84. Psychologists' assessment of Larry Hall's cognitive functioning places him at or near the edge of being intellectually challenged. He's above the threshold of being considered disabled based on his IQ score alone, but is within the range where further analysis of his day-to-day life, his ability to care for himself, and perform routine tasks could potentially change this. Larry's IQ is not to the point where it would prevent him from living a normal life, nor is it grounds to excuse any actions that he may have taken later in life. But it is worth noting the potential impact his low IQ may have had on his development. Paired with his low average intelligence, Larry Hall developed a significant speech impediment in early childhood, which, along with living at the cemetery and other factors, led him to being bullied at school and made it difficult for him to develop friendships. In his book, Christopher Hawley Martin, who we heard from earlier, notes that Larry, Gary, and their mother were subjected to routine abuse and violence at the hands of their father who, especially after drinking, punished family members for breaking his militant, rigid rules. Amid this environment, Larry was drawn toward introspective hobbies. He developed a strong interest in history and math, even managing to receive decent grades in school in these areas despite entering high school with a reading level below the sixth grade. As he grew up, Larry's love of history drew him towards a unique hobby, one that would define his friendships and activities throughout the rest of his life. He began to attend and eventually participate in military reenactment events, particularly, though not exclusively, those from the Civil War era. In 1988, Larry and Gary Hall made the acquaintance of friends Guy McAllister and Michael Thompson through military reenactments, who further introduced the brothers to the scene and lifestyle. Eventually, the Halls and Thompson would formally join McAllister as members of the traveling group of reenactors who comprise Company A, 19th Indiana Volunteer Infantry Regiment of the Federal Army of the Potomac, known to many Civil War buffs as the Iron Brigade. Membership in the group was a true lifestyle choice. Larry and Gary were regularly asked to travel with the 19th Regiment to sites around the country, participating in reenactments at many of the locations where the original Iron Brigade had battled the Confederate Army. Their division was even asked to perform during production of the major Civil War films Glory, starring Denzel Washington, Matthew Broderick, and Morgan Freeman, as well as Gettysburg, starring Martin Sheen, Tom Berenger, and Jeff Daniels. Reenactments suited Larry Hall, He seemed drawn to the escape of assuming another character from an entirely different era, to building bonds through common interests rather than striking up friendships in other areas of his life. Larry was so committed to his role within Company A that he grew and maintained the distinctively long mutton-chopped sideburns which, though common in the late 1800s, made him stand out in the 1980s and 1990s. It was during this time in the late 1980s, while Larry and the others were traveling the country for reenactments, that many investigators suspect Larry may have begun abducting and killing women. It's important to state here that, to this day, Larry Dwayne Hall is convicted and incarcerated for only one crime, the 1993 kidnapping of 15-year-old Jessica Roach in Illinois, which we will cover more fully later. Any other cases in which Larry is considered a suspect 
have been linked to him through aspects of the killings, the locations in which they occurred, or, in some cases, Larry's own insinuation of his involvement, or even confessions, many of which he has since recanted. But more on that later. Back in 1988, investigators throughout the Midwest and Mid-South began to see a rash of disappearances of young women. In September, a young female was reported missing in Illinois, and then that same month, another in Ohio. Neither of the women were ever seen again, and no remains have been found and identified as a match. A few months later, in December of that year, the unidentified remains of a different woman were found in Rising Fawn, Georgia. Without knowing her identity, detectives had very little to act upon, and the investigation quickly ran cold. The disappearances continued into 1989 and 1990, across Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and more. Initially, as they were spread at locations across the Midwest, the cases were treated as individual occurrences and were not linked in any way. Many, if not most, remain unlinked in any official capacity to this day. But, one by one, as the 1990s progressed, investigators began to note that the disappearances, or in some cases, the discoveries of human remains, seem to occur in close proximity to historical sites, battlefields, and reenactment events. They had an inkling that a pattern was taking shape. This seems very relevant today, knowing that many attribute proximity to historical sites, and particularly the very reenactments Larry Hall was participating in, as part of Larry's unique MO, or modus operandi. But, at the time, an inkling was really all it was. Larry was not identified as a person of interest in the cases. No one at that time in the early 1990s was monitoring his travel or his schedule. Even today, with the benefit of hindsight, it's hard to determine just how many cases could potentially be linked to Larry Dwayne Hall. The fact is, historical sites and battlefields are incredibly prevalent throughout the country particularly in many of the Midwestern states where women were going missing in the late 1980s and 1990s. Many of these states formed the battle lines of the American Civil War or hold sites or forts and other historical markers related to the Civil War or one of the several others that shaped the early years of the United States. You can take nearly any case of an abduction or murder, and this is as true today as it was then, and more than likely, find a historical site or battlefield relatively close by. That's part of the challenge. It's tempting to lump any disappearance, particularly those where remains were never found, and with it, the important details of the murder that often point to a profile of the killer, as part of the group considered the possible work of Larry Dwayne Hall. Any of them certainly are possible, but the fact remains that by 1992, the year in which Lori Deppis disappeared, we simply do not know how active Larry Hall may have been over the preceding years. As the decade progressed, Larry would be connected to reports of suspicious activity, additional abductions, and eventually, the kidnapping and murder which ultimately landed him in prison. But the cases up through 1992 are largely linked with Hall only through the timing and proximity to battlefields, evidence that is loosely circumstantial at best. There are some cases, and we'll get to covering these, which do have a stronger link. But sadly, for many unsolved cases from this time prior to late 1992, the only answers hang in the very thin thread that is the time and place of the crime, with no other real evidence to support the theory. We took this brief aside from the timeline of Larry Dwayne Hall for two reasons. First, August 1992 marks the date most relevant to our investigation, the disappearance of Lori Deppis, a crime for which Larry would take credit, then later recant. Second, we wanted to pause at the brink of 1993, as this is a time in which the tale of Larry Hall takes a significant turn. It marks the point at which investigators begin to take notice of his actions and his potential connection to the crimes when the first concrete evidence of his possible wrongdoing begins to mount. The mysterious disappearances in 1989 through 1992 
continued unhalted as calendar turned into 1993. Every month or two, sometimes even more often, a new case would crop up that bore possible resemblances to the others that were now dotted across the Midwest. On March 26, 16-year-old Raina Rison of LaPorte, Indiana, left her job at a local veterinarian office, telling a co-worker that she was headed home for dinner with her family and her high school boyfriend. Though it was only a short drive, Raina had not arrived 20 minutes later, then 30. Her panicked family and boyfriend began wondering what might have happened. Raina's boyfriend, noting that it was very foggy and that she didn't like to drive in poor weather, headed to the vet clinic to see if Raina had been delayed. He didn't see any sign of her on the drive to the office, nor did he find her there when he arrived. The next day, Raina's car was found along the side of the road, miles from her expected route. Her purse was in the car, the keys were in the ignition, and the hood of the vehicle was up despite no signs that anything was wrong with the car. The only sign of foul play at all, and not a conclusive sign at that, was one of Raina's barrettes was found lying on the ground near the car. Just like in the case of Lori Deppis, Raina's disappearance had a significant impact on the local community and even drew national attention. The following Friday after a car was discovered, Raina's case was featured on America's Most Wanted, a show that biographer Christopher Holly Martin notes is one of Larry Dwayne Hall's favorites. A month later, Raina's body was found floating in a nearby pond. It had apparently been concealed poorly by a smattering of broken sticks and branches. At the time of the discovery and identification of Raina's remains, there were not too many details that linked Raina's case to the others later attributed as the potential work of Larry Dwayne Hall. The police focused their investigation much more locally. But, over a year later, when police inventoried Larry Hall's possessions, they would find a birth control package with R. Ryson written on it. Though it is worth noting the name was handwritten in pen rather than printed as a label, making its presence on the package a little less obvious. Even so, the link to Larry Dwayne Hall as a significant person of interest was clearly established. Laporte, Indiana is about an hour and 45 minute drive from Larry Hall's home in Wabash, Indiana. Just three days after Raina was murdered on March 29, 1993, Trisha Lynn Reitler disappeared after purchasing a few items at a grocery store near the campus of Indiana Wesleyan University in Marion, Indiana the school the 19-year-old attended. A search of the area yielded shoes, a shirt, and jeans found near a tree in a field commonly used by students as a shortcut to the grocery store. Trisha's family and friends identified the items as hers. The grocery store clerk identified them as the items Trisha was wearing the night that she disappeared. Trisha's remains have never been found. Beyond the proximity of Indiana Wesleyan's campus to Larry Hall's home in Wabash, about 25 miles, there once again would not be too much evidence to connect Larry to the crime, had it not been for the night of April 6, 1993, only a few days later. Heather and Christian, two 19-year-old students at Indiana Wesleyan, walked from campus to the Marsh supermarket nearby. It was the same store that Trisha had visited to purchase a root beer in a magazine just before she disappeared. As the pair walked home, they noticed that the same van had been driving back and forth past them. The driver, a man, seemed to be watching them intently. Each time the van passed, it got closer and closer to the girls as they walked. Eventually so close, the pair would tell police they could have reached out and touched it. This was just days after Trisha had gone missing. The case still dominated the headlines, and everyone in the area was especially wary. Spooked by the van, the girls took off at a run toward their dorm. The driver of the van yelled something unintelligible at them as they escaped. Back at their dorm, Christian called campus security and reached Dale Beck, a police officer under contract with the university to assist with security. He took the girl's description of the vehicle and driver and, pretty quickly, located and stopped that vehicle. Beck asked the man why he was driving back and forth down the streets, 
and the driver responded that he was struggling to find a friend's house, thus needing to turn around several times. Aware that no crime had actually been committed, Beck decided to gather more information by helping the man find the house. He took down the address and used a phone book to pinpoint the spot, only it wasn't listed. Beck called dispatch and asked for help, receiving the same result. The address simply did not exist. But, just like frightening young women, possessing incorrect information was very suspicious, but not a crime. Beck was out of options. Before turning the driver loose, Beck asked his name. I'm Larry Hall, the man told him. In September of 1993, 15-year-old Jessica Roach was abducted while biking down an unpaved road near home in Georgetown, Illinois, just past the Indiana state line. It was the case that would ultimately lead to Larry Dwayne Hall's arrest and conviction. Jessica had just gotten off the bus, and she and her sister both had new bicycles. And uh, so Jessica goes out, gets her bicycle, and she's walking down the gravel road. I assume she was walking down the gravel road because she wanted to get to the paved road. While her sister, who also had a new bike, um, drove past her on the way to, to Georgetown to do some errands and saw her walking the bike down the gravel road. Five minutes later, a bus driver turns down that road. And he turned down that road at exactly the same time every day. And he sees a bicycle laying in the middle of the road with some scuffing around it like there had been a scuffle. And not wanting to run over the bicycle, he stopped the bus and moved the bicycle over to the side of the road. And then the sister comes back from town, as I recall, and sees the bicycle laying there, goes to the house and says, why is Jessica's bicycle laying alongside the road, which of course alerts the father. He goes down and he brings the bicycle back to the house and they call the police. On the evening that Jessica was taken, Monday, September 20, a cashier at the Spring Creek Travel Plaza over the state line in Indiana was driving home after his 3 to 11 p.m. shift ended. He turned east onto County Road 1300, which cuts through the seemingly endless expanse of cornfields common to the area and noticed a man with dark hair and a beard walking out toward the road, exiting a cornfield, visible due to the clear-skied moonlight and the clerk's vehicle's headlights. The driver didn't think much of it at the time, but many months later, the sighting would become pivotal evidence and testimony in the case against Larry Hall. Two months after the nighttime drive home, the cornfield would prove to be the site where Jessica Roach's body was discovered. It would be over a year before Larry Hall was arrested in connection with the abduction and murder of Jessica Roach. During that time, Larry continued his seemingly new pattern of brazen stalking in his van. On May 29, 1994, a brown striped van repeatedly passed a young woman who was rollerblading down the county road in Perrysville, Indiana, very close to the area where Jessica Roach's body had been found and just a short drive from the site across the Illinois line, where Jessica had been taken while biking. After the brown van passed several times, each time slower and closer, the rollerblading woman hailed a passing vehicle. It turned out to be some acquaintances of hers. She told them she was being stalked by a man in a brown van with mutton-chopped sideburns and asked for a ride home. When she was dropped off, she hid at her house and watched the brown van drive past yet again, she noted the license plate. That same day, over the Illinois state line in Georgetown, the town where Jessica Roach had been taken, a tan and brown van followed and spooked two girls, ages 13 and 15, as they biked through town. The girls cut down an alley on their bikes, arriving safely at one of the girls' homes. They locked the door and called the other girl's family. Fearing for their daughter's safety after receiving the call, the family decided to drive around looking for the van. After an hour of searching, they encountered it on the road and attempted to pursue it. 
After a brief high-speed chase, the family was able to get close enough to jot down the van's license plate number, which they brought over to the Georgetown police. The license plates recorded that day in both Perrysville, Indiana and Georgetown, Illinois were the same. They belonged to a brown and tan van registered to Larry Duane Hall. The very next day, May 30, Larry Hall was detained in Gas City, Indiana, after he had driven back and forth past women in town. And so they pulled him over, and yes, they found a burning fluid, a cotton mask, knives, rope, um, what you would call a serial killer kit. Having found the suspicious items in Larry's van, along with articles about Trisha Reitler's disappearance, police arrested Larry Hall. Under questioning, Hall confessed to killing Trisha Reitler and told investigators he would help them recover her remains. But, as would become a consistent thread in Larry Hall's confessions, he was unable to lead police to Trisha's body and did not provide them credible proof that he had been involved. Ultimately, Larry was released from custody, labeled a wannabe serial killer who provided a false confession due to his inability to provide any information that would be known only to the perpetrator. Incredibly, as if he desperately wanted to be caught, Larry was arrested yet again the very next day, this time in his hometown of Wabash, after stalking four women out for a walk. During questioning this time, Larry began to tell officers that he often had dreams or periods of time in which he wasn't sure what was going on. He said he'd find things in his van afterward that weren't his, keys, clothing, undergarments, that he'd find ways to dispose of these things, only partially remembering why they were there at all. He also told police he remembered having people in his van, but didn't remember why or who they were very well. Despite these statements, police still did not have any concrete violations of the law on which to base an arrest. They set him up with a psychiatry appointment, which was the best they could do at the time, and then they had to release him. In the months that followed, there were a few more cases of women found murdered or missing that have been theorized as connected to Larry Hall. On at least one more occasion, Larry's license plate was noted by the victims of his drive-by stalking after Hall attempted to lure them into his van. The mounting attention toward Larry's behavior reached its peak in late October of 1994. On the 22nd, Larry had once again visited Georgetown, Illinois, the site of Jessica Roach's disappearance the year before, as well as the stalking incident in May of 1994 in which his license plate was reported to police. This time, he frightened two teens by following them in his van. They were able to provide a consistent and accurate description of Hall to the police, who were now familiar with Larry Hall's van and his physical characteristics. The repeated stalking incidents in Georgetown, an area already in crisis following Jessica Roach's disappearance, prompted the investigators in the Roach case to seek a more in-depth look at Larry Hall. They contacted police in Larry's hometown of Wabash, asking if they could arrange an interview with him. The interview was set for November 2, 1994. Larry Hall told the group of detectives that had gathered, two from Wabash PD, one from Illinois investigating the Jessica Roach murder, and two from Marion County seeking answers in the disappearance of Trisha Reitler, that he had never been to the area of the crime. He claimed he'd never visited Georgetown, Illinois. When presented with the fact of his license plate being documented in Georgetown and having denied he'd loaned his van to anyone, Larry began to change his story, saying instead that maybe he had been to Georgetown without recognizing that's what it's called. Larry also said that he might have pulled his van up to talk to some girls, but if he did, it would only have been in a friendly way. He denied any intent to harm any women, during the questioning, Hall did tell detectives that he had, in fact, been in the local area the night that Jessica Roach went missing. He said he was attending a Revolutionary War reenactment near Forest Glen Preserve, just outside Georgetown, Illinois. During the discussion of Jessica Roach's murder, the two detectives from Marion County, J.K. and Bruce Bender, who were present to ask questions about Trisha Reitler's disappearance from Indiana Wesleyan, where Larry had followed two girls just days afterward, remembered something potentially important. 
They recalled information gathered from when Larry was arrested much later for following women in Cass City, outside of Indianapolis, earlier that year in 1994. When officers had searched the van there, they'd found scraps of paper with notes scrawled on them. Some of the notes read, Perrysville, Vermilion County, 20 miles, Cornfield, 10, Roach. Detectives were convinced Larry should be further investigated for his involvement in Jessica Roach's disappearance, even if he wasn't admitting much in the interview. But it was technically a federal crime. The abduction and murder, two pieces of the same crime, occurred across state lines and were the jurisdiction of the FBI. Another interview, this time involving federal agents, was set for about two weeks later. On November 15, 1994, Larry Hall was interviewed by detectives from the Wabash Police Department, Vermilion County Police Department, which covers Georgetown, Illinois, and two FBI agents, Agent Ken Temple and Agent Michael Randolph. This time around, Larry seemed ready to talk. Within a couple of hours of his interview with Special Agent Randolph, Larry Hall had signed a written confession stating that on September 20th of 1993, he abducted Jessica Roach by pulling her into his van as she walked her bike. He told investigators he tied her up, unsure with what, and drove until he found a spot near a river and a bridge where he sexually assaulted her and strangled her with a belt. Hall's confession noted he found a road that led into a cornfield, so he drove his van into the field, removed Jessica's body from the tarp in which he'd wrapped it, and left her among the rows of corn. During the confession... Hall also provided vague statements that indicated he might have been involved in other murders. At times he named places, stating he remembered needing to be with somebody and heading to Marion, Indiana on a few occasions. Marion, as we mentioned earlier, is the home of Indiana Wesleyan University, where Trisha Reitler had gone missing, and is very near other disappearances that also have been possibly linked to Larry Dwayne Hall. He also remembered being in Claremont, outside Indianapolis, stating he thinks he remembered taking a girl there. But on these occasions, Larry said he couldn't remember the names or faces of girls. They all seemed the same, he said. Larry was shown photos of victims, but would only tell investigators he thought they might look familiar, but he couldn't be sure. He said he didn't remember things well when he was in his state of dreams, and that he often had to piece things together in his mind afterward. At the end of his signed statement, Larry Hall included one final sentence. He wrote, I've also gone to Wisconsin to reenactments there. Last time was a year or so before. Although he did not claim to have taken any women from Wisconsin in his written statement, the context of the comment, among his other near confessions, raised red flags for investigators. It put Larry Hall on the radar for anyone investigating cases of missing or murdered women in Wisconsin and, really, throughout the Midwest. Larry Dwayne Hall caught the eye of detectives searching for answers in the disappearance of Lori Deppis. Along with the interviews that led to Larry Hall's confession, investigators and FBI agents obtained search warrants for Larry's home and his vehicles. He owned two vans, the brown and tan one he'd been spotted in throughout the preceding year, and a teal van that Larry no longer drove for long-range travel but still parked at his house and used locally. In the vans, officers found over a hundred items that further solidified their belief that Larry was involved in many more abductions. They found maps with locations marked that seemed to correspond with some of the unsolved cases including the site of Jessica Roach's abduction and the field in which her remains were found. More disturbingly, they found many pieces of paper containing small notes Larry left for himself hidden under the van's carpet and in wheel wells. Some were concerning for their instructions. Put curtains in windows. Buy two more tarps. Check colleges. No forensic evidence. And many more. Others such as the name Jessica written on torn-out pornographic magazine photos, provided more concrete evidence of his crimes. In the van, investigators also found a notebook, Larry Hall's diary of sorts, which contained many more short snippets of information. 
One page held the words Lori and Fox River Mall written on it, although the name was spelled L-O-R-I, not L-A-U-R-I-E, as Lori Deppis spelled it. These items and others seemed to point convincingly toward Larry Hall as the perpetrator of many crimes, but none were strong enough to warrant an arrest and press charges for any crime other than the one Larry faced for abducting Jessica Roach. Despite his status as a person of interest in the Lori Deppis case, there were not many developments that helped provide answers. Officers in Menasha wanted to interview Larry Hall, but were not able to do so on advice of Larry's legal counsel as he prepared for trial. Larry's habit of admitting to details, such as the location or site of an abduction, or even copping to the entire crime itself, only to later recant his story, had frustrated investigators seeking answers in the past, most notably in Gas City after Larry's confession to the murder of Trisha Reitler. The problem wasn't just his proclivity to reverse his story either. Larry often failed to provide information that would verify his claims or prove beyond a doubt that he was the perpetrator of a crime. He wouldn't or couldn't lead officers to clues that backed up his stories. It's the reason he'd been released in Gas City earlier in the year. Even now, in the abduction and murder of Jessica Roach, a case in which he had signed a written confession, Larry Hall once again attempted to recant his story, telling detectives he thought he'd been telling them the details of a dream. He didn't know he was admitting to actually having committed those acts. Despite this, investigators believed his confession to be genuine and proceeded in bringing the case to trial. In the absence of forensic evidence tying Larry to the crime, he was charged solely with the abduction of Jessica Roach. The case was tried in federal court as the crime crossed state lines and was the jurisdiction of the U.S. Justice Department. Larry's confession was convincing in court. He was found guilty in 1995 and sentenced to life in prison without parole. Larry's defense team appealed the decision, citing that experts who could have testified concerning false confessions were prevented from being called as witnesses. The Seventh Circuit U.S. Court of Appeals agreed, sending the case back to the U.S. District Court for a new trial. This decision was particularly relevant to the Lori Deppis investigation, as it meant that, once again, investigators would be prevented from speaking with Larry Dwayne Hall about his involvement in the crime while he prepared for his new trial. It would take until 1997 before the second trial was held. Despite a well-organized defense, something we'll touch upon in a later episode of this podcast, Larry was once again found guilty of the federal crime of kidnapping, he would remain in prison. Further attempts at an appeal, continuing to delay any interview with investigators, were rejected in 1998. Larry Hall had exhausted his legal options. Detectives in Wisconsin began working to coordinate a conversation with Larry. Eventually, although it wasn't until 2002, they were successful. Only, Larry didn't provide anything useful. He denied he was involved. It was undoubtedly a disappointment for investigators who held hopes that Larry's willingness to admit he had been in Wisconsin, paired with the notes found in his car, would lead to a confession that he had abducted Lori Deppis. But that confession didn't come, at least not in 2002. Officers continued to work the case with Larry Hall as a key person of interest, but not the only suspect. And the years continued to pass. It's now late 2010. Larry Duane Hall is still in prison. New information on his involvement in the Lori Deppis case has not been revealed. Over the past years, an inmate turned informant had been moved to the prison with Hall and instructed to develop a rapport with the hope of eliciting confessions. Though the informant project turned up some further suspicious details, including a master map marked with potential locations of crimes Larry had created and hidden within the prison, the fellow inmate had failed to gain the ultimate prize, a complete confession in any case. However, perhaps invigorated by the effort, investigators decided to take another run at Hall, asking him yet again about his involvement in the many unsolved disappearances from his days on the road. The conversation would shock them. 
during a two-hour interview with detectives. Larry disclosed the details of a trip he claimed to have taken to Wisconsin in 1992, which, he said, was for the purpose of attending a Civil War reenactment. Larry told investigators he knew who Lori was, that he had seen her working at the Fox River Mall during his travels. And then, to the investigator's surprise, he confessed to abducting and killing her. The news was surreal. It had been years since Larry Dwayne Hall was arrested for the abduction of Jessica Roach, years since he first became a suspect in Lori's disappearance. He'd had opportunities to admit the crime on many occasions to many different people, but each time he'd refused. Now suddenly, Larry had opened up. Detectives from Wisconsin hurried to the prison to speak with Hall. They wanted to gather details of the crime, hoping he'd provide them with information that could confirm his account of the events and, after all these years, offer some closure to the family, friends, and really the entire community. Here's retired DCI Special Agent Kira Shawhorn, who you've heard speak in earlier episodes. If you recall, Kira was assigned as the lead agent on Lori's case for nearly a decade before retirement in 2020. Like 1995-ish, I think, is when his name first surfaced as far as possibly being involved in this. Um, so he was looked at. I mean, he was he was on the radar for you know 15 years uh, before that ap- that before that actual confession came about. So he was somebody who was looked at as a suspect for a while, and then that confession happened, and it certainly, you know provided something for us to go and do based on the confession that he had. There was some investigation that was done, you know, based on what he had to say. And I don't know if it changed the trajectory of the case as much as just was a continuation of looking at one of the suspects that we had in the case. As Kira points out, detectives have spent many years continuing to work the case interviewing community members, developing potential suspects, following up on tips. With the knowledge that Larry Hall was a significant person of interest in the case, but not the only one considered a suspect. But this was new and promising. It might be the break they'd sought for decades. When detectives arrived at the prison to speak with Larry Hall, they found that he was still willing to talk about the case. He continued to claim responsibility for Lori's disappearance. It's important to note that Lori's case remains open to this day, and, as such, many of the specific details Larry Hall told investigators have been kept a closely guarded secret. A guarantee of sorts that, if they ever turned out to be accurate, there would be no grounds to claim that his knowledge was influenced by media coverage or other sources. But we do know, however, Larry Hall told investigators he had been to Wisconsin to participate in a Civil War reenactment held at Greeno Mansion in Kakana, just a short drive from where Lori disappeared. A newspaper ad printed in the Oshkosh Northwestern in 1992 shows the event occurred Friday, August 15 and Saturday, August 16, though visitors could stick around on Sunday the 17th to watch a North vs. South baseball game, played by the rules of the game as they were written in the 1860s era. At some point in his interview, Larry told detectives that he had visited the Fox River Mall on the night of August 19th. He said he saw Lori there, that he followed her to her car after she left, and that he abducted her. Seeking to recover her remains and corroborate Larry's account, detectives asked Larry where he put her body. He told him it was a wooded area and gave them a general location to search that was never made public. This all occurred in late 2010. Ostensibly, investigators kept the information quiet while they attempted to search for Lori's remains, or really, any evidence that Larry's story was accurate. Without an exact location, though, this proved extremely difficult. They found nothing. It seemed that, once again, Larry Hall had admitted to a crime, provided details that at least seemed credible, that could fit with the story, but, frustratingly, could not be supported with any physical evidence. In May of 2011, without the additional proof needed to charge Larry with a crime, law enforcement made the decision to at least share the possible answers they had with the community. 
In a press conference, officers provided the public with an overview of Larry Hall's confession. It was big news and for many offered a sense that they had finally received the answers that they had craved for years. People were willing to, at least to some extent, accept that they may never get concrete proof of Lori's fate, but could take solace in knowing that Larry Dwayne Hall, a convicted kidnapper and suspected serial killer, had confessed. Maybe that is the answer. It's entirely plausible, maybe even likely, that Larry Hall abducted and murdered Lori just as he told investigators in 2010. No evidence has been found to support Larry's claim, but does that mean it's not true? Certainly not. And no evidence has been found to discredit the confession either. And that's just what those in law enforcement would tell you. Larry Hall very possibly could have done it. There's just a lack of evidence either way. Yet, that's exactly the type of detail that sticks with investigators. There's no evidence to support Larry Hall was truthful in his confession. And, as we mentioned earlier, he had never been their only suspect. Yeah, so everybody thinks that Larry Hall did it. And, no, you know, we in law enforcement have never been able to prove any of Larry Hall's information. And so here we are with this supposed confession that occurred, you know, 12 years ago now nothing has come from it. And that's what is, that's what is, you know, people know about when they read the story. Well, didn't Larry Hall confess? Didn't, isn't this solved already? Didn't Larry Hall do it? Larry Hall confessed to it. And there we are, there we sit with this information that um, we've never been able to corroborate any of Larry's information. Next time on Cold Case Frozen Tundra. Oh no, there was there was no doubt about that at all. I mean, the minute she saw his picture and in the paper, and I said, she came home from from school or work or whatever it was, and I said, they caught somebody, and I said, I'm going to show you his picture and see what you think. And the second she looked at it, she said, that's him. We at Cold Case Frozen Tundra would like to thank Christopher Hawley Martin, whose book informed much of our discussion of Larry Hall's timeline. We'd also like to thank Kira Shawhorn for lending her thoughts and expertise to help frame our understanding of the case. If you want to keep up with new episodes of this show each week, be sure to subscribe or follow Cold Case Frozen Tundra on your favorite podcast platform. You can also check us out online at frozentundrapodcast.com or on Facebook and Instagram at Frozen Tundra Podcast. Our theme music was created by Mario Cole 06 and is available on Pixabay. All other music used in this show was written and recorded by me.